Well, good morning. My name is Brian. This is Jerry. We're two of the teaching pastors here at Northwest. And there is certainly no greater cultural debate or controversial moral issue in our day than the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. In fact, you can't hardly pick up a, a newspaper without reading stories of athletes or celebrities that are, as we say, they're, they're coming out. Politicians that are changing their minds, changing their views on the issue, and, and certainly the highest court in the land coming down with a same-sex marriage ruling. And here's the truth, that sadly the church has often been afraid to talk about homosexuality. And many Christians, and you may be one of them this morning, you, uh, many Christians feel confused and divided on the issue. And, and I think it really comes down to two things. They understand the command that's given in Scripture that we love, that we love one another, that we love people as God loves people and Christ died for people. And yet at the same time that there is an imperative in Scripture that we be people who speak truth, who understand truth. And sometimes that's a conflict for us. And, and, and there are many, I'll talk about this a little later in the service here, but there are many who struggle, even within the context of an evangelical church like ours, with same-sex attraction. And those people feel alone, and so often they feel alienated by the church. And I really believe that the day we're living in right now provides us a perfect opportunity as God's people to speak on the subject of same-sex attraction, of homosexual marriage, in a way that is both biblical and compassionate. And that's what we want to do this morning. I, I think we have to reject our fears and our misunderstandings, and we have to see all people, whether we're homosexual or heterosexual, we have to see all people as people that are in need of the grace that God provides at the foot of the cross. We know it to be the gospel. The gospel is not just simply for heterosexuals. That's what the evangelical church so many times has confused, that it's for a certain demographic, a certain looking person. No, we are all in need of the gospel, no matter what our sexual orientation might be. And so I want you to know that we plan on teaching on this topic again in the fall or winter. Jerry and I have talked about that, and it'll probably be a, a two or three week series at that point. But we felt within the context of this series, where our people are asking questions, we got a number of questions on this particular topic. And we felt given the conversation in our culture right now, that it would be just wrong of us just to skip right over it and just say, hey, we're just going to deal with it later on. And so we've decided that we're going to answer just a few of those questions this morning. And here's the truth, that no matter how much we tell you this morning, whatever we tell you, whatever you learn, you're probably a number of you just like me, you will forget a lot of it right when you walk out the door. I'm hoping you'll get some, some of those tweetable moments, right? That you'll remember those things. But I know that a lot of it you, you won't get. And so what we want to do is we want to make some resources available to you. I've got four of them listed on the screen. I think one of them is, is already sold out. Another one we don't have, but two of them are still back there. In fact, the one that I think probably is best for most of you, we still have a number of those. Over the last year, I've done a lot of reading on the subject. I've listened to a lot of sermons, a lot of debates, a lot of podcasts, a lot of other presentations on the topic. And these four books for me really stand out. The first one is, Can You Be Gay and Christian? 
This is written by a brilliant theologian. And if you're one of those people, you really like to go in deep on a subject, this is probably a good book for you. It's about that thick, all right? And it'll take you some time to wade through it, but a, but a great book on the topic. He does a really great job of exegeting the texts that are in Scripture that relate to homosexuality. The second is, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? It's by a man named Kevin DeYoung. Kevin goes through, much like Jerry will do here in a moment, and he, he highlights the six times when homosexuality is mentioned in Scripture. But he also talks a little bit further about those that claim to have a high view of Scripture and use Scripture to say something different and to condone same-sex marriage and homosexuality in general. And that's a good read if you want to go in further in that debate. Then there's another book. It's called Love Into Light. A number of you have talked with me over the years about having a friend or a family member that is either in full into that lifestyle, into the homosexual lifestyle, Maybe they, they're even married to a person of, of the same sex, and you really struggle with how do I love them? How do I have relationship with them at some level? How do I talk to them? This is a great book that will help you in that process. And then the last one, and this is the one that I would recommend for most of you, and there's a number of those back there. You ought to try to pick up one at the information desk as you leave, and it's called, Is God Anti-Gay? Probably, it is a very small book, Okay, we went from very thick to very small, 83 pages. You could read it really sitting down in a couple of hours and really get a good grasp of the issue. The really interesting thing about this book is this man is a pastor in the UK who has struggled all of his life since he, I think, says since he was about age 12 with same-sex attraction and yet has a very high view of scripture, realizes that homosexuality is not God's plan for us and yet writes about it, I think, from a very biblical standpoint and yet a very compassionate standpoint as one who has struggled with same-sex attraction. And I think that that'll be a fantastic book for any of you to get. Even middle school, high school students, I would recommend this all the way up uh, through adults. Well, as I said, it's a difficult issue and we certainly want to address it biblically here at Northwest. And so that's why we want to start right there. And so Jerry's going to answer the first question, which has been asked a lot, and that is, what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? Yeah. So this is, this is something for people that would say, you know what, I believe that the Bible is true, and I really want an accurate picture of what these passages say. I think what's happened in our culture is something that's, that's happened in a lot of cultures, even back in uh, Scripture times. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 is writing to the church that meets at Philippi, and he says, I'm pleading with you now, even with tears. There are many that live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. And what it means when it says their God is their stomach, not that they love to eat, many of us can resonate with that, but rather their God is in what they feel. Why did you look at me? I didn't. It was just a common... How many of you think Jerry looked over to his left? When... That point exactly. This is part of my mannerism. Keep, just... keep going. Time is of the essence. You just interrupted and I lost my train of thought. It's a slow train. It's a slow train. That was my nickname. You'll catch up. Yeah, but Philippians 3.19, thank you for that. Their God is their stomach. Their feelings are held as a higher regard than what truth is. 
And that's what we've seen in our culture, if you really think about it. Even as you, as you talk to a lot of believers, you would say, yeah, I love God, I believe in scripture, yet I just don't feel like God would be upset with two people that wanna get married that love each other, even if they're the same gender. So at some level, man, some of this has crept into our society and our purpose today, my purpose in this first section is to go over all six passages that specifically mention homosexuality. And they're gonna be listed here on the screen. Now I'd encourage you to take them down, read them more in depth later, but I just wanna kinda give you a little bit of an overview so that we can be well educated as to what the other side is saying people who try and explain away some of these verses. The first one is in Genesis chapter 19. And those of you that have been around the church scene for a while will recognize the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this was Lot, where he lived, a man named Lot, and three angels came to visit him. He hosted them in his house. And it says in the narrative that all of the men from the city, from the old to the young, surrounded the house, were pounding on the door, saying, bring these visitors out to us so that we might know them, basically so that we can have sex with them. So this was a situation of a violent homosexual gang rape is what was going on here in Genesis chapter 19. And what has happened is these six passages have been called by some clobber passages, right? These are the ones that Christians have held up on banners and on posters and pickets and everything else to kind of clobber, you know, homosexuals with this judgment and uh, condemnation. And this is one that you see a lot of, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if we're honest with ourselves about this passage, this is not about consensual homosexual attraction and activity. It's not about that. The evil that was going on in this city has to do with violence. And you could sit down with any homosexual gay person and say, man, Genesis chapter 19, do you think that's okay? And they would say, no, that's terrible, that's horrible. They would disagree with what happened there as well. Okay, so to use... The idea of Sodom and Gomorrah as one of our proof texts really does believers a disservice because the text does not say that that is primarily what it's about. And as a matter of fact, we're told what it's about in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. We're told what the sin of Sodom is. It says this, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. So the problem, the judgment of God on that city is that they were selfish, they were rich, they refused to help other people. That was the issue that's listed in Scripture. So I think we need to be careful about that one in particular. It was definitely homosexual activity, but not monogamous, consensual activity. The second and third one we see in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. And these are a little bit tricky. If you really want to be entertained tomorrow morning for your devotions, open up Leviticus chapter 18 and just read through that entire chapter with your cup of coffee. Because the whole section of Leviticus 18 is all about all the prohibited sexual relationships for the nation of Israel. God wanted to lay that out in extreme detail about all the relationships that were forbidden. And you read through it and it says, a man should not have his wife's sister. 
Well, that makes sense. A man should not have his mother's sister. A man should not have his father's wife. And it just goes through all these different incestuous relationships that we would read through and be like, oh, this is disgusting. And yeah, I totally agree. That's not right. But there's also some in there about a man should not have his neighbor's wife. A man should not commit adultery. And listed out right in the middle towards, towards the tail end of that listing is a man should not sleep with a man as he sleeps with a woman. So my point is that's listed out in the context of Leviticus 18 of a number of deviant sexual behaviors. And it's repeated again in Leviticus chapter 20. Same exact phrase. And so I bring that to you because what you need to understand is there are many who would justify away these passages in particular with a thought that goes like this. Well, if you want to quote that, then you also have to take all of Leviticus and obey all of those laws, right? I've seen a number of Facebook posts like that say, okay, well, if you're going to say that, then you also can't eat any pork, because that's also prohibited in that same section, which is true. Did anybody have bacon this morning? We live in North Carolina. Anybody like pulled pork sandwiches? Right? I don't think anybody would stand up and be like, yeah, that's for today as well. What about the prohibition that says you can't have two different kinds of fabric interwoven? That's right in that same passage as well. So why would we say the prohibition of homosexuality versus some of those laws that we look at as kind of silly and arbitrary and definitely not for today? Well, that is an unbelievably important question that we need to address. And how I want to address it with you is this. How do we know what laws in the Old Testament are still valid in the New Testament? Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So you have to ask yourself the question, well, which of these laws did Jesus affirm? Which did the apostles affirm? Which are repeated in the New Testament and which ones aren't? And as complicated of an issue as that is, it's really rather simple when you break it down. There's four basic types of laws that you see in Leviticus. You see food laws, ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. Everything that you see in Leviticus 18, those all have to do with morality. They have to do with sexuality and God's design for it. Those are repeated and those are affirmed in the New Testament. You remember we talked about even in September, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Remember what Paul was writing? He's like, I can't believe in your own church a man has his father's wife, his mother-in-law he's sleeping with. That's a direct quotation from Leviticus chapter 18. That says, of course that's wrong. So they're affirming that in the New Testament. The moral laws still need to be repeated. Well, what about these other ones? Well, when you think about the idea of the food laws, you see that those were done away with. I love the passage in Acts chapter 10 where Peter has a vision and he sees this giant sheet coming down from heaven. This is actually my life verse, mm, I know as you well know. And there's all kinds of animals on this sheet. And, and God says, go, Peter, kill and eat. Go enjoy steak. Go enjoy pork. Go enjoy chicken and everything else. And Peter says, Lord, never. I won't do that. I follow the ceremonial laws. 
But it was at that point where he said, nope, all that's done away with. You know, man is no longer defiled by the food that goes within him. So freedom was given. Enjoy that. Food laws no longer valid. What about the civil laws? You know, some of those things that you see about how they ran their operation of the nation of Israel, how they punished certain sins. All that is changing as well with different governments and different organizations. That changes with every society. The civil laws. And the ceremonial laws are the ones that have to do with the Sabbath and sacrifices and all of that. And we can see that all that was done away with through Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with regards to food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are only a shadow of things to come. So all those other things were specifically for the nation of Israel. So when you look at that and when you get bogged down into those questions about, well, what's valid and what's not, hopefully that can shed a little bit of light for you as far as those Levitical laws. The next couple of one, the next several are in the New Testament. Romans chapter one, verse 24 is kind of the, the, the one that everything hinges on. I mean, that is incredibly obvious if you read through it, what it's talking about. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, some even who have degrees after their names who are well-educated biblical scholars would say, well, that's in reference to male prostitution or somebody sleeping, forcing themselves on a slave or something like that. But I think if you really look at the context, it could not be more obvious that this is a consensual type of relationship, men burning with passions towards one another. There's an equality there. So it's not talking about what you see in Genesis 19. This is uh, clearly something that scripture calls unnatural. And with that in mind, we just need to recognize that biology tells us that, you know, Genesis chapter one and two, God created male, God created female. There's a complementary nature to our design biologically, physically, and that's God's design. And that's his ingenious way of creating something incredible for us to enjoy within the confines of a committed marriage relationship with men and women. And I think that's the key there from Romans chapter one. The other two both have to do with big long lists. The one from 1 Corinthians six, the one from 1 Timothy chapter one. There's a big long list in each of them of all the things that, that are sins and, and that are characteristics of a people not living for God. Things like drunkards, greedy, idolaters, men who practice homosexuality, those are listed in both of those. And as you're reading through it, again, I would just encourage you, if you hold a high value of scripture, you have to ask yourself the question, was that a mistake? And is there any reason why we should take just that word homosexual out of that list? And everything else is bad, but this one, ah, it's okay. I think you'd have a really tough time justifying that because you'd look at the rest of the things, drunkards, well, of course that's wrong. Idolaters, you know, people who are, commit adultery. Yeah, we all agree that those things are clearly not part of God's plan. So you can't just take one and, uh, and, and keep all of the rest.
All right, so one of the other questions that we were asked was, how do we as a church respond to the changes in the definition of marriage? In fact, one particular question was, how will you respond if pastors are required to do same-sex marriage or lose tax exemption? And really, that's a, a big question, but it's really a fairly easy answer for us. And that is at Northwest Community Church, we're not going to perform gay weddings. We want to honor the government, obviously, but we also want to honor Scripture at a higher level and honor the institution of marriage as it's laid out in God's Word between a man and a woman. And so, therefore, we're not going to be involved in homosexual weddings. So here, here's the bottom line. In the future, I really believe that it is quite possible, if not probable, that we will lose tax exemption if we refuse to do that. And so here's what we're going to do. We're not going to do it, and then we're just simply going to come back to you and ask you to give more money. It's really that simple, all right? It's very, very easy, very simple answer. If you see that we've lost tax exemption, then you need to up it, all right? That's just how it's going to have to be. Well, here, I, I've said this several times in different contexts with regards to politics, but I just really don't believe that the church should panic over what has just happened. Now, now, don't hear me say that we just sit back and go, hey, there's nothing we can do about it. Paul said to Timothy, the world's going to get worse and worse, and it is, so we just sit back and do nothing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm thankful that God has put people in our society good Bible-believing Christians that have given their life work to addressing some of these things from a political standpoint, from a legal standpoint. We're grateful for that, and that can be done that way, and that's good. But here's the bottom line. One man said it this way, the Supreme Court can do many things, but the Supreme Court cannot get Jesus back in the tomb. Right? That's true. Jesus is still alive. You understand that, right? He, he's still in control. The gospel has not changed. In fact, I would submit to you that the message of the gospel is as relevant, if not more so, than it was before the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage. God is still in the business of changing people's lives as we come into a relationship that we were created to have. And while I believe that that decision is going to have far-reaching consequences, for individuals and for families, and I believe possibly even our civilization, I want you to hear this. I don't believe that the gospel needs family values to flourish in order for it to be relevant. Okay? Here's why I say that, because if you go into your New Testament and you read about what was happening in Ephesus, you know, when Paul wrote to Ephesus, and he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for the church. That meant, husbands, you ought to be willing to lay down your life for your wife. <laughs> and the, the, church, the, the Ephesians looked at that and went, dude, you're crazy, right? Because women were subservient to men. Jesus turned the whole thing upside down. In Philippi, you see the same thing when Paul wrote to the Philippians, and certainly Jerry just talked about the culture in Corinth and in Rome. They held to views of marriage in those cultures which were totally contrary to what Scripture was teaching, and yet what happened to the gospel? The gospel was taking off like wildfire. 
And so moving forward, the church is going to need to be able to articulate well what we believe about marriage like never before because we can't assume that people are going to agree with us, right? I'm 49 years old. I know it's hard to believe. And I can still remember being born in 1966 early on in my life when I just believed that everybody I did life with and interacted with in my neighborhood and other places, they just seemed to agree with me on these things. Do you remember that? That's not today, all right? People don't agree with us, and that's why we need to be people who don't simply talk about what the Bible says about marriage. But, but hear this, we have to demonstrate the reality of a gospel-centered marriage. That's what we need to be doing as Christ followers. And I believe we've done a poor job of that in the past. There are too many marriages and churches that have been ravaged by divorce. There are too many times when leadership has neglected to confront those that have been unrepentant with regards to a divorce that's not been biblical. Certainly we believe that in Scripture there are reasons why a couple might get divorced, but a lot of divorce that's taking place, even in evangelical churches, is not biblical, and it's not right. And I would submit to you that because of that, and because the church has failed to confront that, we have, to a certain degree, we've lost our credibility on the whole issue of marriage. And so when we talk with an unbelieving world who finds it laughable, some of what we believe, and we say that marriage is between a man and a woman and and the great institution of marriage, and yet we have disregard for it right here in the body of Christ, we lose our voice. We have to be careful about that. We need to place a strong emphasis on biblical marriage. We need to expect men to love their wives like Christ loves his bride, the church. And I believe that when, when husbands and wives who are Christ followers, when when, when they live out biblical marriage, that gives us the opportunity for what Jesus called us to do with marriage in the first place, and that is for it to serve as a picture of the gospel, of his love for the church, for us to be a light in a dark place. Permanent, stable marriages with families, with both a mom and a dad, are going to seem to be odder and odder and more peculiar in this 21st century as it moves on. Yet one Christian leader said it this way, we shouldn't fear that. We believe stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is alive and he's gonna show up in the eastern skies on a horse. We believe that the gospel can forgive sinners like us and make us sons and daughters. He says, let's embrace the sort of freakishness that saves. So if they think we believe freakish things about marriage, we, we, we embrace a lot more ridiculous things in their minds than just that. You know, there are two sorts of churches that are, are never going to be able to reach people that are going to become refugees of this sexual revolution. You say, what do you mean by sexual refugees? I mean those that are going to buy in to the fact that the Supreme Court says that this is marriage. And they're going to say, well, that makes me happy. And they're going to embrace that. And they're going to embrace that lifestyle only to find out in the end that their creator knows best. And I believe we are going to see sexual refugees. That's going to be the fallout. And there are two sorts of churches that are not going to be able to reach those people. The first is the church that has given up on the truth of Scripture, including its teaching on marriage and sexuality. 
If a church is like that, and by the way, those churches exist right here in the greater triangle area. They've already given up on that to say we're not gonna fight that battle. That battle's already been waged, we lost it. We're just gonna ignore that or pretend the Bible doesn't say it, but we're not gonna teach the truth of scriptures. Those churches will have nothing to say to a fallen world. The second, though, are churches that scream with outrage at those who disagree with us. And we do so in a very harsh, unloving tone. We become nothing more than white noise. We become wah, 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 just like when you tell your kids to clean their room. You've told them so many times, you've yelled at them so many times that all they hear is wah, 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 wah. They're not hearing anything that you're saying, all right? Those are the kind of churches that are not going to have any impact or any influence. We wanna reach all people. And that's only gonna happen when we do it with truth, yes, but with grace as well. So we want our church to be a a safe place. In fact, I I would argue that the church should be the safest place in the world for the sexually broken. Now, some of you just heard me say that and you think, well, he's talking about homosexuals. We gotta be a safe place. No, I'm talking about the sexual broken, which is many of us here this morning who don't struggle with same-sex attraction. I'm talking about men who have gone in full board with pornography. The church needs to be a safe place where they find truth, yes, but where we find grace as well. Just like what Jesus did when he met the woman at the well, right? Remember when he met her and he engaged her in conversation? Even though he was the son of God, he knew exactly what her life was. He knew exactly the choices that she had made. And in a conversation with her, He told her eventually to walk away and don't go sin anymore. He engaged with her. And we want our first response to be compassion and not condemnation. And just to be clear, just so you make sure that you hear exactly what I'm saying, we should treat Christians who fight their same-sex attractions, Christians who fight their same-sex attractions, as wounded soldiers and not damaged goods. If statistics are true, and they are, there are people in our congregation here at Northwest that come here probably on a regular basis that struggle with same-sex attraction. Some of you are looking at me, yeah, I said that, all right? That's truth. Whether you want to believe it or not, that is the truth. And we know what Scripture says. We know that's sin. We know what a lot of Scripture says about different areas of sin. I'm not saying to ignore that as sin, But we have to be a place where we look at that as that is a wounded soldier, not damaged goods. And our response has to be as a church, not simply condemnation, but it has to be truth with compassion. And I will tell you that by God's grace, as long as I'm here and part of the leadership team, we want Northwest to be characterized in that way. Mm -hmm. And that goes right along with the next question, which is how do you best minister to someone who is a homosexual? And that's a great question for us this morning. There are many of us that have family members or close friends or coworkers that are involved in this lifestyle. And how do we interact with them? How do we engage with them? I think oftentimes the church has just been completely silent on that or individuals have just been paralyzed because you just really don't know. Well, I want to just share a couple of 
quick principles with you about that. I mean, number one, I think we need to recognize that this is a legitimate feeling and leaning and temptation for people. And I think that's a first step for some because, you know, in years past, it was kind of like, well, you don't really like other, you know, men. Like, you just haven't met the right girl yet. Or like, somehow you just kind of deny the fact that this is a legitimate, difficult issue that they cannot help. And I think to even recognize that at some levels, people are born with this kind of affinity, that these leanings for the same-sex attraction, that that is a legitimate thing, that maybe it wasn't even part of what happened to them when they were young. In their experience, they've just always had this. This is always what they've known. They've always had that feeling. I think you need to recognize that that is real. And just because I don't struggle with same-sex attraction doesn't mean that it's any less real for somebody else who does. And their temptation or their leaning or their affinity is no worse than what mine are, just because mine are not homosexual. See what I'm saying? So I think that affirmation that says, hey, I believe that this is real for you. I believe that this is a difficulty. Tell me about it. Open up the conversation. That's going to be the first step that you can have with them that will allow the conversation to start so that you can kind of take away the taboo of it, okay? Because we obviously believe that it's a sin, and we obviously believe that God will give the power to overcome those temptations in that realm the same way as he does in a heterosexual realm. But we need to be able to open up that conversation in order to even get to that point. Because if they're not hearing anything from us but hands up and just kind of keep at a distance and not wanting to go to those conversations, they're going to find that affirmation somewhere else. They're going to find other people that they can share these feelings with and they will embrace them with open arms and affirm that lifestyle rather than what scripture says how we should deal with some of these temptations. So we want to, we want to deal with it the way Jesus did. And that's, he reached out in compassion, as Brian said, with the woman at the well. Also, you think about the other situation, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus was there to basically have her accusers go away. Now's not the time for that. Now's the time to say, woman, I love you, and I accept you, and if you come humbly, I will help you overcome. Go and sin no more. So I think to open up those conversations is really important. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were given through Jesus. It's got to be an equal combination of those two things, how we respond to somebody that has these types of leanings. And one final thought, we want them to know that there is a place for them in the church, that there is room for them in God's kingdom, no matter what their past was. I referenced the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One of the huge crescendos of that passage is in verse 11. After that giant listing of revelers and drunkards and the immoral adulterers and men who practice homosexuality, in verse 11 it says, such were some of you. So in that church, in Corinth, there's people sitting right there that used to be male prostitutes, that used to give in to their temptation of homosexuality and live that lifestyle. And Paul says, that's who you were before. The cross is big enough. Grace is great enough to overcome any temptation and sin, including that one.
Well, we're going to land the plane, but for those of you that, that look at your watches, all right, we're going to be just a few minutes over, all right? I'm just going to tell you that here, but I want to, but I want to land this with this last question because I think it's really, it's really important for you to grasp this. And the question is, is how should Christians treat those who don't agree with them? Have you engaged in this subject with somebody, whether it's a coworker, friend at school, family member, and they don't agree with you? Anybody done that? All right, number of you. Many times I believe we as Christians have responded, do respond in a way that has hindered our ability to impact and influence our culture. I know I speak with great authority on that subject because I am so capable of speaking truth. If you want truth spoken to you one-on-one, I am your man. I can do that. I get that. I understand truth. I'm not afraid to speak it to you. What I have been guilty about many times, even in my ministry life, is not doing it with grace, right? And Jesus was full of truth, but he was also full of grace. And that's what we want to be as we interact with people on this subject. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I like all of that till it gets to the semicolon. At the semicolon, then it says after that, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with grace, yet truth. And so that's what we want to be. That's the kind of people that we want to be. And if we're full of truth, but we lack grace, then truth gets distorted and grace gets lost. On the other hand, if we're full of grace, and we don't have any truth along with it, then grace gets distorted as something that it's really not. And so we want to be full of grace and truth. And so there are five really simple suggestions that I want to give to you as you interact with people on this topic. They're very simple, yet I really think you should write them down, all right? You need to take special note of them. Maybe for some of you it's one over the other four, but you need to remember these. Number one is don't whine on social media or play the victim. I know over the last several weeks, actually it's been going on for many years now on Facebook, Christians have a habit of just simply whining and playing the victim. We have a tendency to focus on how persecuted we are. Can I just say to you that we're really not that persecuted yet? If you study church history, you will go, I am so glad I am being persecuted like I am today. We're not really that persecuted. Will there come a time? There very well could come a time. In our lifetime, some of us that are sitting here today, we could suffer persecution to that degree in this country. I believe that that's possible, but it's not today. And I think maybe that the emphasis should not be on how persecuted we are because I don't think that we should be surprised. In fact, I would say to you that the biblical imperative is that we should rejoice when that persecution happens. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do you know what that word blessed means? A a, a better translation is really happy. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on Facebook falsely on my account. 
And some of you go, I cannot believe that this dialogue has gone where it's gone. I never intended it for it to go here. And I'm like, really? You never intended for it to go there? What did you think was going to happen? Right? Instead, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What makes you think they're not going to persecute you? So here's my challenge. Don't rant and rave and whine on Facebook. I would encourage you to engage with people one-on-one. I've got a student that was in my former ministry, and he's a very bright guy. He delights in doing this to me. He sabotages me all the time, no matter how simple something is. And I rarely, those of you that are my friends on Facebook, you know this, I rarely put anything on Facebook, but every once in a while I see something, I think that's good. I never try to be antagonistic on Facebook for the very reasons that I'm giving you. And he lobs grenades at me. And he doesn't do it in a, what is it, private message? He doesn't do it in a private message. He does it publicly. Most recently, I know all of you now are getting on my Facebook to see what he wrote. Most recently, he basically said that I'm an idiot and I'm just the simpleton pastor, Right? While at the same time, he tells me how much he loves me and respects me, and, but I'm a simpleton, and he's probably not too far off, right? But I know what he wants to do. He wants me to engage with him publicly. He wants me to lob grenades at him. Some of his arguments are so simple, and based on the fact that I am so full of truth, I would love to lob grenades at him and take out my biblical you know, gun and start shooting at him, but it does no good. Please don't do that. Please don't whine on social media or play the victim. Number two, don't target less common forms of sin and ignore the more common ones. We have a tendency to loudly condemn the sins that we're most disgusted by. You ever do that? (laughs) You're not really disgusted by your sin as much as you are the sin that somebody else commits that you would never do, and so that's the one that we speak loudly about. If we really want to talk about the most common sins in our culture, we probably won't talk about homosexuality, okay? The most recent statistics that came out estimate that only about 2.3% of the population is homosexual. So that means that 97.7% of us aren't. Why is it that we are so amped up about homosexuality and we ignore what the Bible says about divorce? I know some of you about now are going, you should have stopped right at noon because you didn't want that to come up in the context of homosexuality. What I'm concerned about is this, and we say this because we love you, right? Is why do we get so amped up about homosexuality and yet we think divorce for any reason, including our lack of happiness, is okay with God and then we as a church just kind of sweep it under the rug? Let me ask you, what's more destructive to our culture, homosexuality or Christian husbands who don't love their wives as Christ loved the church? I know the answer to that question. I don't think homosexuality has caused much harm to this church or in this community. But I can tell you when those of us that name, that we claim the name of Jesus Christ, we're followers of Christ, and husbands, okay, we need to take leadership in our homes and we don't love our wives as Christ loved the church, we do great harm to the gospel. We have to model biblical marriage ourselves. That's when we have credibility to speak on the issue of marriage. Number three, 
Don't expect people who are not Christ followers to be obedient to biblical principles. <laughs> I've said this before. I want to just say it again here in this context. All right? People uh, that are not followers of Christ are not going to be obedient to biblical principle. I call it the Ephesians 2 principle, where Paul says, you were dead <laughs> until he regenerated us. He made us alive. I equate it, what a lot of us as Christians do with our culture, that we want them to act like us. I equate it to going to a funeral home, looking down in a casket, and looking down at the dead body that's there and going, smile! smile. I said smile! Nothing happens. I'd submit to you that dead, that corpse, is never going to smile unless the mortician raises the sides of his mouth. He's dead. We, we should not expect those that don't claim the name of Christ to be obedient to the things of God. Number four, do respond to homosexual sin in the same way you should respond to heterosexual sin. You say, I really wish you hadn't gone there. Well, we have to go there, right? If we're going to have honest conversation about the issue, we have to go there. When we're asked a question like, what do you think about homosexuality? We should respond the same way as if we were asked the question about heterosexual sin. For example, how, how would you respond to the couple that moves in across the street from you who is homosexual? Would you respond differently to them if they were a heterosexual couple who was just living together outside of marriage? How, how do we as a church, those of us that name the name of Jesus Christ, how do we respond to the high school or the college kid that's having sex outside of a marriage covenant? Our response should be the same. In fact, I would suggest it should be something like this. I feel the same way about homosexual sin as I feel about heterosexual sin. God designed sex for a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. Because we lose our credibility if we talk about one issue while simply ignoring the other issue because we've caught up to culture and we just go, we lost that battle. If that's your argument in 20 years, you won't have an issue with homosexuality either. And let me tell you this, my friends, God's word's not gonna change, okay? It's the same today as it was 100 years ago. And it'll be the same if he tarries, whether he tarries or not, it'll be the same 200 years from now, no matter what happens in our culture. Lastly, just real quick, do choose your words carefully and wisely. How you say what you say is sometimes as important as what you say. It's wrong to be rude even in the name of biblical morality. You have to be careful with how you say what you say. And too many times we as Christians, in the name of biblical morality, have been combative and we've done nothing but just spar with somebody. It does no good. Also, avoid common statements that lose credibility. I've heard several use this phrase and I, I kind of cringe when I hear it. I've probably been guilty of it in the long ago past, I hope. We say things like, uh, well, after all, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And it's as if people go, oh, how profound. 
I never thought about it that way. I've changed my whole view on homosexuality. Thank you for that nugget of wisdom, right? Can I just tell you if you do that, well, I'll just say it and I'll get some emails. You're stupid. I know parents, some of you don't like to use that word, but hey. I believe when we do things like that, we really go against another proverbial principle, and that is it is better to be thought a fool than to open up your mouth and prove it. When you say things like homosexuality is a choice, I've never talked with somebody who's in a homosexual relationship, and I have people that are very close to me that are. I've never talked to one of them that said, I woke up one day and I just chose that I'm going to go down that road because it looked fun to me and exciting to me. I don't believe that. And if you say that, you prove your ignorance on the subject. When you say homosexuality leads to other sexual sins, oh, all homosexuals, you know, they're child molesters. You say that, you prove your stupidity. I've heard people say, if you repent, God will take your homosexual desires away. Not necessarily. I've known men that have been addicted to pornography. They've confessed it as sin. They've repented. And yet they struggle. They do battle with it every single day. Why do we think that homosexuality would be any different? Then I hear people say, love the sinner. What? Hate the sin. I've come to realize in my study over the last months, over the last year, that that that's really a kind of a stupid statement as well. Because people that struggle with this lifestyle, they believe this is who they are. And as a result of that, when we say things like that, what we're saying is, I love you and I hate you. They contradict one another. And so here's the bottom line. As we interact with others on this topic, we want to do so with with an acute awareness of our own sinfulness. I think humility is the word of the day on this particular issue. Not just speaking about that sin, but being aware acutely of our own sinfulness and speaking certainly with biblical clarity and a deep, deep, deep compassion for people. I think we have so lacked that in the body of Christ on this particular issue. Full of truth, but full of grace. And as we do that, I believe then we can encourage people to embrace the gospel and see the gospel transform and change lives. And that's what Jesus modeled for us, and that's what I think we should do on this issue. I want to challenge you to, as you leave this morning, to look at those resources out there. At the very least, pick up one of these Maybe just get one for your family and and just read it so that you have at least a good grasp, a biblical understanding of the issue. And then I pray that we will be a church, we'll be a church where those that are refugees of the sexual revolution find truth. Because we stand firm on scripture, but yet we do so with gentleness and respect, with truth and grace and compassion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you are very, very clear on this issue. As much as there are some that are in our world today that want to confuse the issue and make your word say something that it doesn't or ignore what it does say, God, we thank you for clarity on the issue. Because if we're willing to be students of the word, 
if we're willing to really exegete a text and understand a text and look at it, look at it within context, we can understand these things. God, I pray for those that might be here this morning and they struggle with same-sex attraction. And for them, this message, this time that Jerry and I have had, maybe is a little bit confusing to them because for many years all they've heard is condemnation, condemnation. There's been never any compassion, no grace. Just simply being pounded and beat up with truth. God, I pray that you would help them to understand that we love them but that you love them more than we ever could. And that you love them too much to let them stay right where they are. That you want them to be transformed by the gospel, through the gospel. And I pray, God, that our church will be marked by these things. That those of us that don't struggle in this area will approach this with great compassion because we realize that we too are sinners. We're far, far, far apart from you except for the shed blood of Jesus that we found at the foot of the cross. So I pray that we, as we, as we dialogue with people, friends, family members, coworkers, friends at school, I pray we will do it with gentleness and respect, full of truth, yet full of grace and compassion. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Let me just say, we're not going to sing here at the end. We're, we're over, and I know that. I get that. We talked about that after the first service. I just think that there are some times, and you need to know this, there are some times when we're in certain areas and certain topics where an hour and 15 just won't cut it, all right? And so we're going to take the time to at least do our best to give you a, a full understanding of a subject. And I don't even think we've totally done that. Hopefully, we'll get to do it this fall and winter. If you have more questions, maybe you're here this morning and you struggle with same-sex attraction and you're, as I prayed, you're, you're thoroughly confused now because you've never been in a church where they've dealt with it with truth and yet there seems to be compassion and grace and you want to talk to somebody, we would love to have that conversation with you. If you're out there and that's not your issue, but you know you've struggled and how you've dialogued and you've interacted with people on this subject and we can help you further or you have questions, we want you to feel totally comfortable in uh, talking with us up front right now or certainly emailing and phone call, cup of coffee, something like that. We'd love to do that as well. All right. We love you guys. Thankful for you and want you to have a uh, super week. We'll see you next weekend. Bye-bye.